Good morning. Uh, you can be seated, but you're already doing that, so great. Uh, my name is Gary Anderson. I serve as the pastor here at Granny White. Uh, so glad that you are here. Thank you for being here. It is a joy to be in God's house together this morning, and I'm excited to uh, study his word together. We're continuing our fall series in the book of Revelation that we're calling Reframing Reality, and I'm going to invite Kaylee Cornett to come up, and she is going to read uh, our text for this morning. We're in Revelation chapter 7, and we're going to look at the whole chapter. So Revelation 7, 1 through 17. All right, read along with me, starting in verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And when one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed with white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That was awesome. Thanks. I could not see the road through my tears. Every once in a while, I sit down to start a sermon, and I'm like, how am I going to start this thing? And something like that comes to me, and I'm like, oh, this is, this is it. Like, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I couldn't see the road through my tears. It was the summer of 2015. Uh, I was 10 years. I'd been 10 years at an investment company that I'd been working for. We lived in Ohio. We had great community. Uh, we had good friends. We were in a good church. My parents lived in town. It was a town I grew up in. Uh, we had kind of settled in for life. And over the previous, like, call it 
18 months or so, God had been working in my life and in my heart and then kind of separately in God's, or in God's life, in Beth's life and in Beth's heart. Uh, and we were starting to question really at some really deep levels, um, what was God calling us to and what, what, was, uh, what was his desire for our life and what should it look like? And we ultimately came to the decision that what we were doing was not what God had for us. And so uh, we decided that I was gonna go back to school which when I graduated from undergrad, I was like, never again, no more, thank you very much. So that in and of itself was, has to be from God, because that's insane. Um, and so we decided that I was gonna go to seminary. So I enrolled in a school called Gordon-Conwell, which is outside of Boston. Uh, and in the middle of the summer in 2015, we sold our house. Uh, we began to sell many of our worldly possessions. And like the last week in August, 2015, I went to the next town over, went to the U-Haul, place, picked up a 26-foot U-Haul, brought it home to our house, backed it into the driveway, and for the next four days, we loaded all of our stuff into that U-Haul. Moving is miserable, especially when you do it yourself. But I also kept thinking about how much money I was saving, and so there was some joy in that as well. <laughs> uh, so moving day, uh, well, it would be hard for me in the few moments that we have together this morning to uh, communicate to you how challenging that summer was emotionally. Uh, it was so confusing. It was all these greatly conflicting emotions of great excitement and like, what are we doing? And joy and sadness and is this really what God wants us to do? And so uh, we get to moving day and I'm gonna drive the U-Haul from Cleveland to Boston, which not really happy about that to begin with. And uh, my wife's gonna drive the minivan and my parents came in their car and so we had a little caravan, but I knew I would go slower in the truck. And so I got up really early and hit the road early. And I'm, uh, I, I head out on the highway. These are roads. I've lived in Ohio since I was 12. Uh, I'm driving up 271 towards the city and the lake where I'll hit 90 and then head east towards New England. Roads I've driven literally hundreds of times through towns where I had friends and exits that I'd gotten off uh, dozens of times. And I think kind of all the weight of the tension of the last six months or 12 months just kind of flooded over me in that moment. And I began to cry and I, not, I didn't begin to cry. I cried like a little baby. I, I wept. It wasn't a few tears coming down my cheeks. It was like, <gasps> you know that, you know that crying? You've been there? Some of you, maybe. Now I am not a, like, I'm not a non-crier. But I'm also not a like, I'm not a frequent crier either. So this was not like something that was, it's not like this happened every Monday. And it was just like, oh, here's another, here's starting a new week. Here goes Gary. Uh, I was, I, I was, certainly it was like, there was some kind of release just from, well, I don't know if release is the right word, but I was feeling the weight of everything. Uh, I, I, we were leaving a lot of things that we loved and certainly I was sad about that, but it was more than sadness. The reason that I was crying like that that day, September 4th, 2015, is because I was scared. And not, and not actually, scared would be like an understatement. I was terrified. I, I had no idea what lay ahead of me and I was so scared about it. Fear is one of the most basic and common human emotions. We all, a part of what makes us human beings is that we experience fear. We are all afraid of, of certain things. And actually, um, I looked at a few lists this week of kind of the, the main things that people are afraid of. And I just wonder if any of these are gonna like strike a chord with anyone in here. If you're like, I'm not afraid of anything. Well, hold on. The existence of evil powers. That's, that's a good one. Cockroaches, spiders, 
Snakes, there's kind of a theme there. Heights, water, enclosed spaces, especially if it's tight. Tunnels, bridges, needles, social rejection, failure, examinations, and my personal favorite, public speaking. <laughs> I am not a, this is not gonna come as any surprise to you, I am not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, I haven't studied human behavior, I just went to seminary, uh, but I'm gonna do my best to help us distill that list of the, of the major things that human beings are afraid of, and probably there's a ton of other things that we could all come up with if we just kind of shouted them out, and I'm gonna try and distill that into one major idea. What is the one idea that draws all of the things that we fear as humans together, and it is this. We're afraid of the unknown. Like, it is one thing to know something and see what you're afraid of, and normally when you see it, it's actually not as scary as you thought it was, but, but when we don't know, when we don't know what's coming, when we don't know what's gonna happen, when we can't see the thing that we think we are afraid of, that is like the umbrella that covers all of those things. Like right now, I don't know how this sermon is gonna go, and so there's some fear in that. You don't know how this afternoon is gonna go, and so there can be some fear in that. We are afraid of the unknown. And, and for some of us, like, it is terrifying. For some of us, it is um, paralyzing. We spend so much of our lives being afraid of things that are never going to happen. What is going to happen at my job? What is going to happen in my marriage? Will I ever get married? What is going to happen to my kids what is going to happen to my money? What is going to happen to my health? We could just go on and on and on. And the amount of time we spend fearing the things that we don't know is, um, is off the charts. Which is why I'm really excited to preach Revelation chapter 11 today. Or excuse me, chapter 7. Wow. We could do both. I mean, how much time we got? Uh, I am excited to preach Revelation chapter 7 because I believe Revelation chapter 7 is in the Bible to give us uh, some comfort in the face of the unknown. I think actually Revelation 7 is here to teach us that, hey, there's a lot of things that you don't know that you're gonna be afraid of, but there are some things that you can know, and that actually is gonna supersede virtually all of the things that we're afraid of that we don't know about. So uh, we're continuing our series today in Revelation. It has been a ton of fun for me. I don't wanna speak for you, but hopefully some of you are, are buying what we're selling here when we come to Revelation. We're calling it Reframing Reality because what we are seeing as we dig into the book of Revelation is that as weird and symbolic and um, not literal and strange as the book of Revelation is, what it actually is doing for us is painting a picture of what is really real. It is actually telling us that the things that we see, smell, taste, and touch around us in the world as we move through this life, there's actually something more real than that. And that gives us a ton of hope and a ton of confidence as we move through the kingdom of the world, so to speak. So if I had a title for this sermon, I would call it How It Started, How It's Going. You guys seen those pictures? I should have thrown some up, but I don't have any for you this morning. But that is the picture that Revelation 7 is painting for us. It is two pictures of the same thing. Verses 1 through 8 are a picture of God's church his set-apart chosen people here in the kingdom of the world. And verses 9 through 17 are a picture of the same people, God's chosen set-apart people at the end of all time, in eternity, at the consummation of all things. So the, the theme for Revelation chapter 7, how it started 
and how it's going. Now, as, as we dig into seven, we need to just, as we're gonna do every week that we come to Revelation, because we're kind of jumping around from chapter to chapter, and I, I think you'll hopefully see why this week and next, uh, let's just get our bearings on where we are in the flow of the book of Revelation. Hopefully by the end of this series, you'll just be able to be like Revelation 1. John on the island of Patmos, vision from Jesus, send this revelation to the seven churches. Revelation two and three, the seven messages to the seven churches, which as we've said 1,500 times by this point, it's not just to seven churches, it's to all the church, seven, number of perfection. This is a revelation for all of Jesus Christ's church. Revelation starts, like the revelation starts, in chapters four and five. John is brought up into the heavenly throne room, sees God the Father, angels, creatures, worship, see, hears that there's a lion, sees that there's a lamb. Spoiler alert, that's Jesus. The lamb takes a scroll from the right hand of God the Father, but no one, no one can open it because it's sealed, but the lamb is the one who's worthy to open the seals. Revelation six, which we have skipped over, that is the opening, there's seven seals. That is the opening of the first six seals of that scroll. And it represents, it is a picture of God's judgment being poured out on the kingdom of the world, the kingdom that is opposed to him, that is in opposition to him, that is at war with him. And then we get an interlude before the opening of the seventh seal, and that is Revelation chapter seven. So that is what we come to. The six seals have been opened, and then we come to this new vision that John gets in Revelation chapter 11. Chapter seven, wow, I don't know why I'm doing that. They rhyme, 7-11, 7-11, my favorite convenience store. We're talking about Revelation seven today, okay? <laughs> Three things I want us to draw out of this text, and the first one is this. God's people look different than the world. God's people look different than the world. So here's the question we need to ask when we come to the book of Revelation. Uh, it is not, as we move through the book of Revelation, what happens next. We need to ask, what does John see next? because it's not necessarily all in order, and that is what we're gonna see today. So, when we come to Revelation 7, verses one through eight, this picture of the 144,000 sealed by God, that is actually chronologically, most scholars believe, and I agree, before the opening of the six seals that happened in chapter six. Remember, this is how it started, how it's going. So this is the church at, as it exists here in the world. So as we come to Revelation chapter seven, back to verse one, first thing I want us to draw out of here, God's people look different than the world. This is what we see happening. Verse one, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. What is that representing? What is, what is happening? What does the wind represent? Come with me to verse two. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. He had sealed the living God. He called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. What is happening here? This is before God's judgment. This is before God's destructive wind. This is before the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, we'll get to those later in the series, begin to uh, happen and represent God's judgment poured out on the kingdom of the world. Before that happens, God, God says what? I need my people set apart. I need, I, I need my people marked out. I need my people sealed. Now, how many people get sealed? 144,000. I, here's like, let, let, let me just break this down for us. That's not literal, okay? One of the uh, commentators I read this week said that is way too clean of a number for it to be taken literally. Uh, there, 12 is a very important uh, number in the Bible. 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. 12 apostles in the New Testament. 
12 times 12 is 144. And then times 10 times 10 times 10, 10 was another number of completeness in, is in uh, Jewish literature. So like really complete, really complete, really complete. So all that 144,000 represents is not that there are only gonna be 144,000 people saved. That is God's complete church. That is saying that the church of Jesus Christ is the continuation of the promises made to the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. The, the church of Jesus Christ is the new Israel and God is going to set it apart seal it from the world. Now, what does that actually mean? It says, mark them on their foreheads. Is that literal? Or one day, are we gonna, y'all gonna show up here and we got some tattoo pens ready to go and we're gonna put Yahweh on your forehead so that everyone knows, or we're gonna have some, some cattle branding in, going on in here right on your forehead so that everyone, no. All that means, when it says mark them on their foreheads, that means however they are different, however they are set apart is going to be obvious to everyone. It's gonna be able to be seen. So what does this mean when it says seal these people? Listen to what it says in Ephesians 1.13. This is Paul saying, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. How does God set his people apart from the world? How do God's people look different from the world? They have his spirit living inside of them. And that is actually way more dramatic than getting a tattoo on your forehead. I know face tattoos are kind of making a comeback. Actually, were they ever in? I don't think so. Maybe they're, <laughs> this is the first time. Um, we the followers of Jesus Christ, when we bow our knee to him and say, you are Lord of my life, I cannot save myself, I need you to save me, God puts his living Holy Spirit inside of us, and when that happens, the way that we do life amongst the kingdom of the world sets us apart from them. There is something that will be obvious to everyone around us that there is something different about this person or these people because they may not be able to name it, but because they have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them. That is how God seals his people here in the kingdom of the world. My freshman year in high school, my parents took me and my brother and my sister to Disney World. Now, if you're like, that seems like kind of old to go to Disney World. I'm like, I agree. I just, I loved Mickey so much. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I know, I know like a lot of us here, Disney is like every month we go to Disney. That was not how it was for me when I grew up. My family, we had an M&M approach to Disney World, which is not the candies, but the wrapper. We had one shot to go to Disney World. And so we waited until everybody was old enough and could, you know, could experience it and remember it, and I happened to be the oldest. So we went to Disney World my freshman year in high school, and one of the days that we were there, we went to Blizzard Beach, which I don't know if it still exists. I haven't been to Disney World since, remember? One shot. Um, <laughs> but it was a water park. And I, that was a very cultural experience for me going to the water park at Disney World because I'm a child from uh, the Midwest, grew up in Ohio, never had traveled internationally. Um, I'd may, I'd maybe I'd driven through Canada. Uh, and so when we got there, and it was a blast, it was a really fun day, I still remember it. Um, there were a ton of people there at the water park that day who on, on first glance, I was like, oh, these people are just like me. They look like me. They probably are here on vacation from Pittsburgh or Detroit or Chicago. But then the more I observed them, the more I began to realize there are some very different things about them than me. 
uh, they weren't wearing Nike and Adidas. They were wearing like Elise and Kappa brands. Um, when I get, got French fries at lunch, I would dip them in ketchup. And I saw a lot of these people dipping their French fries in mayonnaise. And I thought, that's different. Uh, and then when they opened their mouths and spoke, I didn't understand the words that were coming out of their mouths. And probably the biggest giveaway was my bathing suit came halfway down my shins and they were wearing Speedos. And nothing wrong with that at all. I'm not making any like judgment on that at all. But here's the deal. There were a ton of tourists there from Europe and they kind of looked like me, but they were not like me. They were very obviously very different from me. They talked differently than me. They act differently than me. They wore different things than me. They were not like me. And that is what God's people look like in the kingdom of the world. Not, not saying we're going to all start wearing Speedos. That's not, we're not, that's not where we're headed. But when we receive God's seal, when we receive his mark on our lives, when his spirit comes to reside inside of us, that is going to mark us out as different. All of a sudden now, we may look in some ways like the world around us, but if in every way our life makes sense to the world around us, and in every way our lives look just like our neighbors and our coworkers and the people on our teams, then it's safe to question whether we actually have been marked out by God. Because when we receive his spirit inside of us, think we, have, we are now citizens of a different country. We are now citizens of a different kingdom and we live by a different set of rules and so we're gonna look different in some ways. We're gonna talk different for sure. Not necessarily a different language, but it's gonna sound different when we talk compared to the world. We're gonna live by different values. And so this idea that God's seal is on our foreheads is literally that the way that we live is gonna mark us out as different from the world. That is the first point that is being made here in Revelation chapter seven. God's people are distinct from the kingdom of the world. Here's the second point that I want us to see in this passage. God's people not only look different from the world, God's people look different from each other. God's people look different from each other. So uh, pick me up now in verse nine. This is the, the inflection point. This is where we go from how is it going or how it started to how it's going. John says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And then we get the same scene we got in Revelation five last week with the angels and the creatures, all of them falling down on their faces before the throne, worshiping God, giving him glory, giving him praise. But here's what I want us to see um, as we transition into this next point. Do you remember if you were with us last week, Revelation chapter five, like the key moment, kind of the key moment in the whole book of Revelation is when John recognizes that nobody can open the scroll and one of the elders touches him and says, uh, don't worry, the, lamb of, the lion of Judah, wow, the lion of Judah, the root of David, can open the scroll. So he hears that there's a lion who can open the scroll. And then in verse six of Revelation chapter five, what happens? He looks, and what does he see? A lamb who looked like it had been slain. And now we get the exact same thing happening here in Revelation chapter seven. I love when scripture rhymes like this because what does verse four say? John heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe. And what happens in verse nine? After this, I looked. And what does he see when he looks? A great multitude that no one could number. And what does that multitude look like? They're from every nation, tribe, people, and language on the earth. How does he know 
that these people are from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language on the earth. What's he doing in that moment? He's looking at them. So what does that tell us about the nature of the kingdom of God? It is full of people who don't look like each other. It is a, it is a diverse, it is, it is an incredibly beautiful, diverse body of people from every nation, every continent, every race, every ethnic group, every socioeconomic status, every um, intelligence level, it, and, and he can tell that they are diverse by what? Simply by looking at them. So what does that tell us about heaven? And what does that tell us about what the church is going to look like in eternity? It means when we go out of the great tribulation, we'll get there in a minute, and we get brought into heaven at the end of all time, at the consummation of all things, do we all put on white robes and we just look like carbon copies of each other? Not at all. We maintain the diversity that we experience here on earth forever in heaven. The tent of the kingdom of God is very large. Now, I am not advocating for universalism. I'm not saying that God saves everybody. That's not at all what I'm saying. That's not at all what the text says. But I am saying that there are going to be people from every corner of this planet who are in God's kingdom, worshiping him forever in all of eternity. So what does that mean for us? It means that we are gonna spend eternity in a community of people who don't look like us, who don't talk like us, who don't worship like us, who don't play like us, who didn't vote like us, and we will all be unified under the, the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, are you familiar? I haven't traveled a lot internationally, but some of you may have, uh, or maybe you've watched spy movies and so you'll know. Do you know what an embassy is? An, an embassy is a little outpost of its mother country in a foreign land. So there are American embassies in countries all over the world. And do you know what happens in those embassies? You know who works there? Americans. Government officials from America and their families. Do you know what language is spoken in the embassy? English. Do you know what laws apply in the embassy? American laws. If you are in trouble in a foreign land and you are an American citizen, where do you go? to the embassy, because it is a little outpost of your homeland in a foreign country. And I hope that you are picking up what I'm laying down in this moment, because you are sitting in an embassy this morning. This place is an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. This place is full of citizens of another land who, who answer to a higher government than the one of this land. That's not like, not trying to be um, divisive or like that's not a comment on our political system. We are citizens of a different country and the laws of that country apply in this place. And out, remember Revelation chapter 11. Now I did mean to say it in that moment. Remember the upshot of Revelation chapter 11. We are left here on earth to bear witness to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. And one of the ways that we do that is that we function as an embassy of heaven. We give the world around us a picture of what heaven will look like. This is an embassy of heaven. And so in light of that, what that means, based on what we learn here in Revelation chapter seven, verse nine, is that if heaven is going to be totally diverse, full of beautiful, different, diverse people, diverse ethnicities, races, socioeconomic statuses, all united, if it is gonna be full of people who would have nothing else ever in common except the gospel of Jesus Christ and they can be united under that, that is enough, then that is the picture we are called to paint for the world as we go through it here. 
I said this in the first service, and I'm, I'm going to say it again just to cut anything off at the pass. I hope I don't get an email on this because I'm, I know I'm early in my tenure, but I'm going to step out uh, on a little bit of um, dangerous ground. I, I think it's fair to say, based on what Revelation 7-9 teaches us, that if, if in our journey through the kingdom of the world, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, and we only ever do life with people who look like us, talk like us, vote like us, come from backgrounds like us, work like us, worship like us, then it is safe to, to say we are living out a truncated gospel. Because the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of reconciliation. It is, it is a message that two things that should never have come together, namely God and Jesus, have now been reconciled to their enemies, you and me, by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is not just a vertical component, it contains a horizontal component as well. And so one of the ways that we witness to the world that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, is that we walk in unity with people who don't look like us, sound like us, talk like us, vote like us, with people that we would never, under any other circumstances, be in community with. We can show the world that the gospel is true by entering into community with them. And so I am so, so excited about what Midtown is doing in the Napier community right now. For those of you who may not know, uh, Midtown is a collective of congregations, and we just started our sixth worship service, and we have done that in the community of Napier. And um, that is a huge departure from kind of the traditional communities that Midtown has done churches, church in. And here's why I'm excited about what Midtown is doing in Napier. I am not excited about it because it allows me to say I work for an organization that is doing good work in a less fortunate community and other people are doing the hard work, but I can kind of ride on their coattails and say, look how, look how my organization is digging in. That's not it. I'm not excited about it because that gives me and my children an opportunity to go serve once a quarter and feel good about ourselves and be exposed to something else. That's not, that's not, not why I'm excited about it. I am excited about what Midtown is doing in the Napier community because we need the Napier community as a part of our community because we are not fully living out the gospel if we are not walking with people who are different than us. Because, not because they need anything from us, not because we have anything to give them, because we need from them. Because I need from them. I need to be held accountable by them. I need to be taught by them. I need to be discipled. I need to learn from them. Because that is the gospel of reconciliation that Jesus Christ came to produce. The kingdom of God looks very diverse and it will for all of eternity. And so one of the calls on us as an embassy of the kingdom of God is to lean into that as we go through our life on this king, in, in this kingdom of the world, okay? So uh, God's people look different than the world. They're marked out, they're sealed. God's people look different than each other. And then the last thing that I want us to see uh, in this passage is this. God's people know what's going to happen to me. Remember we started up front like, the fear of the unknown is so paralyzing. And yet one of the promises of scripture is that God's people can know what is going to happen to me. So skip with me now down to verse uh, 13. John sees this mixed multitude uh, praising God and worshiping him. And one of the elders again comes to him and says, uh, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And John says to him, I love this. Sir, you know. There's this scene in Ezekiel chapter 37 where the prophet Ezekiel is looking out over this valley of dry bones and God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, 
can these dry bones live again? And Ezekiel's response to God is, oh God, you know. So here's the takeaway. When God asks you a question that you don't know the answer to, just say, oh, you know the answer, God. He says, who are these? And from where have they come? And he says, you know. And he's like, you're right, I do know. He says to me, these are the, one, the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, serving him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What is this a picture of in verses 13 through 17? This is the how it's going. This is not like some interlude, and then we got to get to the rest of Revelation. This is the end. Who, what does the elder say this, this people has come from? Where has this people come from? I don't remember what verse it is. Verse uh, 14. These are the ones coming out of what? The great tribulation. So let's hang out in the tribulation for a minute because that's a big revelation. What is it? When's it going to happen? What does it start? What does it mean? Here's what I think it means. The, the Greek word for tribulation uh, means pressure, particularly pressing or pressure from the outside. And so one scholar I read this week likened it to a collision. He said a great tribulation is a great collision. And if we think about, like, can we think of, like, has there been a great collision that we know of um, in the history of the church? Uh, and I'm like, yeah, I think we can, because 2,000 years ago, in a quiet little town called Bethlehem, we believe that a baby was born who actually was a king. And when the king of that land, King Herod, heard about it, and he didn't know who he was, and he didn't know where to find him, do you remember what King Herod did? He ordered that all the male babies in Bethlehem be killed. That's some pressure. That's, that's a collision. And then 30 years later, when Jesus started his public ministry, he simply made explicit what was implicit on the night when he was born, when he says in Mark chapter one, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. When did the great collision begin? When Jesus Christ came to the earth and began the invasion, the, the act of, of um, espionage and under the words aren't coming to me. When the kingdom of God came to take over the kingdom of the world, that's when the great tribulation started. So is there some like great tribulation that's coming out there? We're in it. Now, maybe it'll get worse before Jesus comes. It might, it might get better. But you talk to, to, there are a lot of people in the world, there are a lot of people in this room who are followers of Jesus Christ and they could tell you firsthand, man, this feels like a tribulation. This feels like Revelation chapter three, letter to the church at Pergamum. This feels like the place where Satan dwells. This feels like the place where Satan is on his throne. So it's not that we're waiting for some greater tribulation to come. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are in it now. And here's the promise of his word. If you are in Christ, if you are sealed, if you are marked out, if you have his Holy Spirit inside of you, you know how it ends you know the unknown. Because one day, you will be taken out of the great tribulation. And that is not to say you're not gonna face suffering, disappointment, frustration, sadness, loss. You're not gonna face tons of little unknowns along the way. But one day, you will be brought out of the great tribulation. Your robe will be washed white in the blood of the lamb. That could be a whole sermon in and of itself. We don't have time for it today, but how does blood make a robe white? It does. 
and then you will spend eternity serving God in his temple, being protected under the shelter of the Most High. Uh, No thirst, no hunger. The sun will not scorch you. There will be no more tears. That is what is known. That is the seal. That is what you are sealed for. That is the guarantee. So while while we move our way through this hard, frustrating, disappointing kingdom of the world, full of sin and sadness, full of unknowns, some of which are gonna make us weep as we drive a U-Haul down the highway. There is a greater known that supersedes all of the little unknowns. So, so what's gonna happen with your job? What's gonna happen with your money? What's gonna happen with your kids? What's gonna happen with your health? All of those fade, and I'm not trying to minimize them, but all of those fade in light of the great known, which is the how is it going? How it started, kind of rough. How is it going? Perfection. And so we can, we, can, we can move through the trials, the frustrations of this life with some sense of confidence that this is not the end of the story because one day God will make all things new and all things right. Revelation chapter seven, it's full of comfort because this is the promise for those who are sealed by God. Uh, if you remember the story of the Passover, if you remember Exodus, God's people are in slavery in Egypt and God is like, I'm gonna deliver you from Egypt and this is how I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna kill a lamb and you're gonna take the blood of that lamb and you're gonna do what? You're gonna mark the doorposts of your house. You're gonna seal your house and when my angel of death moves through the land, it will pass over those houses that are sealed. That is why God's people are sealed. That is what his Holy Spirit does for them. No longer can the angel of death touch them because they are under the blood of the lamb. And then in in Luke 22, when Jesus is about to celebrate that Passover, the remembrance of what God did in Egypt, he says to his disciples, actually, tonight I'm gonna institute a new deal. Called it a new covenant. That was the Gary translation. In my blood. And he says that Passover, that remembrance that you've been doing for 1,500 years, that was always only and ever about me. And now we're gonna call it the Lord's Supper. And that's what we're about to take together. And I think it is such a, a, beautiful, uh, a beautiful way to embody what Revelation 7 is teaching us. Because when we come to the table, what is done for us, our theology teaches us that we are spiritually nourished when we eat the bread and the wine. That it is, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. This is a memorial because we so easily forget what it means to follow Jesus with our lives. And may, as we come to this table this morning, may we remember that, that this marks us out. This is, this is God's seal marking us out that we are set apart from the world, that we are protected from death forever. May we remember that through the, the, the memorial that is God's table, the Lord's table, we do not have to fear the unknown. Jesus faced the unknown that we would not have to. Uh, this is how we do communion here at Midtown. Uh, we have these kneelers down front. Uh, once we uh, finish up, once I stop talking, we will have a group of folks up here who have the bread and the wine or the juice. Uh, when you are ready, You can come down, you can form lines in the aisles, you can kneel at the kneelers. Uh, When you are ready to receive the elements, just simply put your hands out in front of you and you'll be served. 
If you would like prayer for any reason, just cross your arms and one of our servers would be um, thrilled to pray for you. Uh, and I just wanna remind us of this. God makes it clear in his word that the Lord's table is reserved for those who have made Jesus Lord and Savior of their life. So if that is you this morning, uh, I would say don't walk but run to the Lord's table. If that is not you, if you're here and you can't say, I have made Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of my life, uh, I would say, please refrain from coming to the table this morning. Jesus says it's a really serious thing to come to the table and not have him be the Lord of your life. But I would also say this, if you would not say that Jesus is Lord and Savior of your life, there is no better moment than right now to make the decision to make him Lord and Savior of your life. And uh, myself, one of our leaders, uh, any one of our elders, we would love to talk to you about what that means and how to do it. Uh, after you've taken the elements, you can head out these doors uh, and head down the hallway and then come back in the back. And I just wanna say this as um, gently and pastorally as I can. I know there's a great temptation to consider that the end of the service and go um, pick up kids and go beat the line for brunch. Uh, and if you need to do that, you, you do that. Or if you've got another reason to go, we send you with every blessing. Um, but we would say that it actually is a really critical part of coming to the Lord's table to come back in and after having received from God, turning around and saying thank you to him through worship. So um, would really encourage you to come back in and finish out the worship service with us. Uh, let me read the, the words of institution and we will get going. This is what the Apostle Paul said about the Lord's table to the, the church in Corinth. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God, we thank you. We thank you not only that you have seen fit to set your children apart by putting your Holy Spirit inside of us, but that you have given us um, this memorial whereby we come to you bringing our guilt and our shame, our sin and our baggage. You take them off and you give us your righteousness in exchange. I pray, God, as we come to this table this morning, that you would instill in each one of our hearts who, who know you and love you and have bowed to you, uh, that we don't have to fear the unknown because you hold it in your hand. That the ultimate known we know. That we don't know uh, what you're going to do, but we know what you are capable of doing. That we don't know what the future holds, but we know the one who holds the future. And I pray, God, that you would give us great comfort in that this morning. I don't know where everyone is in life today, God, but I know that there are many who are walking through hard, difficult unknowns. We ask that you would meet them as they come to this table this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.